Good morning, Discover Church. How you doing today? We alive? We alive? We're good? Man, it is summertime, right? My word, it is warm. Um, but I'm so glad that you guys are here. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Journey, and it's my privilege to be the pastor here. Man, I'd love to connect with you. Uh, I'll be in the lobby after the service, so come by and say hello. We are in our summer study series called The Kingdom Manifesto, and what we're doing is we're studying Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that's ever been preached, the best sermon that's ever been preached. And so my job this summer is to try not to screw up the best thing that's ever been preached. And that's what I've been trying to do uh, this summer. Here's the deal. Why are we studying this? Well, we're learning what God's kingdom is. We're learning how God's kingdom operates, and we're learning how God desires for his people, the people who have trusted in Jesus, how are to live and operate in his kingdom. And the reason why this is important is because whether or not you know it or not, we are living in the middle of an epic clash between the kingdom of light, which is the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of darkness, which is the devil. And whether or not you believe in the devil or not, I'll just tell you right now, one of the best things the devil ever did was get people to believe that he doesn't exist. And so uh, we're diving into this and we're learning from the King of Kings, Jesus himself, how his kingdom works. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter six. That's where we're gonna be today. And so far we've learned that there's two uh, common themes in Jesus's kingdom manifesto. The first theme is that his kingdom is inside out, meaning that where most of the world is obsessed about the outside and what we do, and oftentimes even, even his people are concerned and consumed about what we do on the outside, hoping that what we do externally changes what's going on internally. Jesus reveals that the way that he works is that he starts by changing the inside, and once he's allowed access to change the inside, then the outside and the external things that we do begin to follow suit. That's how it works. The second thing that we've learned is that his kingdom is upside down that his kingdom operates, his economy operates in a way that is often contrary to conventional wisdom. And we're here ultimately because we're not interested in conventional wisdom, we're interested in some kingdom wisdom. Can I get an amen? So we're diving into this today and what Jesus is going to address today, he's gonna address two things that on the surface don't seem to really have any connection. Um, the, the things that uh, I certainly have spent a lot of time preaching about each one of these things individually, but I've never preached it together. But I saw that Jesus did, and I figured I'll do what he did. And so Jesus is going to teach on wealth, and he's going to teach on worry. And what he's going to do is he's going to help us see how these two things are ultimately connected together. And as we dive in today, we're going to understand a truth today. Jesus is going to reveal a truth to us that I've chosen as the title of the message is that you can't have it both ways. We can't. And as we work through this, Jesus is going to unpack some things and bring some clarity that we're going to understand what this means. What does it mean that we can't have it both ways? What are the both ways that, that we're dealing with and that, that we can't have both of? And we're going to dive in and we're going to understand that today. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 is where we are. If you don't have the Bible, we're going to put the verses on the screen. We got your back. It says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust 
uh, destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. What Jesus is doing in these two verses is he's, he's speaking to something that is a very natural human tendency that out of a desire to have some sense of security, out of a desire to have some sense of comfort, um, we have a tendency to acquire and accumulate things. If you have ever moved out of a, of a domicile, out of a residence, you realize that you left with a whole lot more stuff than you showed up with. Every time I move, I'm like, how did this happen? Where did it come from? Every time that we move, one of my favorite things that Jessica does, I, I am like an anti-hoarder to the point that when I see something that might be valuable to me or useful to me at some point in the future, I have a serious conversation. Is it worth me holding on to this in the off chance I might use it again? Or would I rather just pay 15 bucks for it again when it comes time that I need it? That's a serious conversation that I have in my head. When I'm incredibly cheap, that's a difficult conversation. Every time that we move, Jessica goes through a process where she just purges. That's my favorite time of our marriage. I'll usually walk in and say, babe, I've never felt more love than I do right now. But we acquire things and we have a tendency to acquire things. And, and what happens is, is sometimes people will look at these verses and they'll begin to kind of teach that, you know, it's, what Jesus is teaching here is that you shouldn't prepare. You shouldn't plan for retirement. You shouldn't have insurance. Listen, Jesus isn't talking about any of that. All right. That's not what he's saying here. What Jesus is getting at is that he's, he's, he's going he's gonna to unpack some things and attack some things, but we need to understand what Jesus isn't saying. All right. First and foremost, it's good for you to plan ahead. All right, it's good for you to plan for retirement if you're able. It's good for you to manage your finances. It's good for you to manage your resources, your time, um, those things. Matter of fact, the Bible actually even says in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22, that a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Now, some of us, and I'll raise my hand, look at our current financial portfolio and go, I got some work to do if my grandbabies have any hope for a retirement, if they have any hope of an inheritance. Perhaps the best thing I can give them in an inheritance is just some, some, some advice. It might be worth more than what the dollar's worth anyway, but that's another message for another day. Jesus is also not teaching here that it's bad to have a lot of money. One of the things that oftentimes uh, gets portrayed sometimes in the church is that it's bad to have money. Money is the root of all evil. That's not true. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. The Bible is actually filled with people who had incredible wealth, incredible riches, um, particularly guys like Abraham and David and Solomon. These were incredibly wealthy people whom God used their wealth and their resources to advance his glory and his kingdom. So it's not wrong to have possessions and wealth and resources, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about and what he is attacking and what he is challenging is he is challenging our faith. And more to the point, what he's challenging is, what do you place most of your faith in? It's the reason why Jesus follows this up in the very next verse. And he says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he's literally saying is, is that the direction and the places that you send your money says 
what matters most in your heart. Or I could word it this way. Show me your bank account and I'll show you what you worship. A lot of times we don't like it when the message gets real in our business like that. But ultimately what Jesus is trying to help us understand is that, that, that when we place our faith in these earthly things, then, then we can't expect a certain return on investment. We can expect a return on investment that, yeah, in the short run, we might receive interest and compounding interest and we might get dividends and, and, and all of these things and we're gonna do all these things to invest and, 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 and try to help or try to get out of debt financially so that we can position ourselves to be better or, or maybe, maybe we're trying to keep up with the Joneses or whatever it is. We can do things financially and we will get a return on our investment. But what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to lift our eyes to see a broader perspective, to see beyond retirement, to see beyond inheritance, to see beyond this age in this world, to be able to see where he is in heaven. And what he's saying is, if you spend all of your days investing your treasures on the things of this earth, here is the return on the investment that you will ultimately get. All of those things that you have stored up, the treasure that you have invested in, the moth will destroy it, rust will decay it, And eventually thieves will come in and take it. And what Jesus is saying here is, listen, you have to understand that that all of these things are corruptible. All these things that you're placing your hope and your faith and your trust in, if that's what you're placing your trust in, understand the return on investment. But then he contrasts that by saying, but when you you store up your treasures in heaven, all right, not not, not when when you invest your energy and your mind and the things that consume you are not just what's going on here on earth, but on what's going on in heaven, the souls of people. When you place your treasure there, then here's the return on the investment that when you get there to actually see your investment realized, what you will learn is that the moth has not eaten it, rust has not decayed it, and ain't nobody stole it because it is in God's secure hands. Jesus takes this to the next step in the next verse when he says this. Um, Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. So what Jesus is trying to help us understand then is because this is so important, because he is so desperate for us to be able to understand the significance, the subtle change between investing in the things of this world or the things of heaven, he now goes through and he, he brings an illustration in to help illustrate the point. This, this is what he says. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now on the surface, um, this seems out of place. In fact, most of my life reading this passage of scripture, I've usually viewed these two verses as the pivot point where Jesus begins talking about something else. But God began to show me this week, no, 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 don't, just because you don't understand it on the surface, don't misunderstand what I'm trying to teach you beneath the surface. You need to understand this. Jesus intentionally places this here. And so what he does is he uses the eye. How does the eye work? Where eyes bring, our light, light comes in through the pupils and, and then there's nerves on the back of the eye and those nerves react to the light that comes in and sends these, these um, electronic signals to your brain and your brain translates what it is that you see so that you can understand what is in front of you. 
We understand that that's the basics of how the, how the eye works. But what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to help us understand that, that when we allow our eyes to become focused on the wrong things, then our eye becomes bad. And, and, and what he's going to jump at here is he is going to come after the people in the audience 2,000 years ago who were of the mindset, yeah, 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 I, I, want, I want a little bit of God, but I also want to be able to enjoy all the stuff of the world. Right, like I want to be able to enjoy all the things, all the trappings, all the pleasures, all of the, 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 the things that come with, with the world. And I want just enough of God so that I can know that I got into heaven. I want to be able to have it both ways. I want to be able to live it up and get the most out of doing anything and everything that I want, how I want, when I want. And if I can know that I've gotten some sort of forgiveness from God, then I can also have it the other way as well and get to heaven and enjoy all of that too. And Jesus is going to attack the people in the audience who like to try to sit on the fence and try to have it both ways. And in so doing, his word has been preserved for us and he's going to come after the Christians that try to live the same way. The Christians that try to say, you know, I, 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 got, I got enough of Jesus so I know I'm going to heaven but I want to get as much of the world as I can get as well. How, how close to the line of the, of the things of this world can I get to and not cross over? How, 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 can I ride the fence and be able to have it both ways? Can I, can I dip into both pots? What Jesus is going to teach here is that this type of living is diluted and it's dangerous. Let me, let me unpack this because the key that helps us to, to understand this entire little two-verse part of the message is wrapped up in the word that we read here in the New King James is good. It's the Greek word haplous. I had to look that up because I did not know how to pronounce that. It's the Greek word haplous, and this is what it means. It means um, motivated by singleness of purpose so as to be open and above board single, without guile, sincere, and straightforward. What Jesus is saying here is that the eye is the lamp of the body. And when our eyes, when our focus is good, that word haplus, when we have a singular focus, not a, not a dual or a multi-purpose focus, but when we have a singular purpose on the source of light, which is Jesus, and we focus on his glory and his righteousness. And when that is the focus and the aim and the intent of our life, then what he says here is that our lives will be filled with light. What he's literally saying is, is that when you allow yourself, when you allow your life to be singularly focused on the glory of God and the souls of people, then what happens is, is that your life will be filled with light. Then what he means is, is that your, light, your life will be filled with spiritual understanding. Conversely, when, you have, when your eye is bad, meaning the opposite of a singular focus, but, a, but a, a duplicity of focus, when you're focused on multiple things, when you're trying to have it both ways, then he says that your, your life will be filled with darkness. Every night before I go to bed, I have kind of a routine. I'm a creature of habit. Any other creatures of habit in the house today? If you're online, put your hand up, say, I'm a creature of habit. 
I do the same thing every night. I go through and turn off the lights off, which nobody told me, by the way, when I was a, a younger man, that most of my life would be spent telling and yelling people to turn the lights off and close the door. But that's what the majority of my job description at home is. So I'm going through, I'm turning on the lights off. It's the last thing I do before I go to bed and all the lights are off and I'm going through and locking, making sure all the doors are locked because I'm a man, it's my house, I'm gonna protect this house. It makes me feel better about myself anyway. And so as I'm coming back through the house, so normally I turn off the lights going this way, lock the doors and then come back this way. And then the last thing I do is I'll go upstairs and I check on the kids. I don't know why I do that, um, but I always go up, check on them, give them a kiss, make sure they're breathing and alive. It just helps me sleep a little bit better at night knowing that the last time I saw them, they were alive. God, they're in your hands now. And this one particular night I was coming through and, the, and, the, and the, you know, the lights were out and my eyes had kind of adjusted. And I know the floor plan of the house and I know where the stuff is. I know where the, the dining room table is and where the, 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 the couch and the, the, the coffee table, all that stuff is, right? So I know what all it is and my eyes have adjusted and I can't really see the things, but I can see the silhouettes of the things. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? And so I'm walking through and normally this goes off like clockwork. Nothing happens until something is in the room that I'm not expecting. And on this fateful night, wham! Now this is the moment that tests the purity of your thoughts because in that moment, whatever you think is coming right out the mouth hole. I don't remember what I said because I was writhing in pain. I done hit something. And my first thought was to be upset at the kids. Dang, kids, what the heck did they leave out? sure that's exactly how I said it. And then I realized what it was and I was like, oh, I can't be mad at the kids. This isn't the kids' fault. This is Jessica's fault. <laughs> but then I realized, like all of this happens in like fractions of a second, right? And then I realized it's not the kids. This is Jessica's doing. But then when I realized that it is a basket of folded laundry that I did not fold... I can't even be mad at her. And so now I'm mad that I can't be mad and I am hurt. I did everything that I could, but my foot did recover. I went upstairs and checked on the kids and came in. Dang it, woman. Thank you for folding the laundry. Just makes me ask this question. How many Christians live this way. The story of your spiritual life is not one of bright, shining light or vibrant, illuminated colors. But the story of your relationship with God is one that is best defined by silhouettes of Jesus somewhere in the darkness. You're not totally sure where he is from moment to moment, but you get a glimpse of him here and there and you know that he's there, but you don't exactly know where he is and you don't know exactly what he's doing and you don't exactly know where he's leading. And so you stumble and you fumble through the dark of your spiritual walk with Jesus and then wham, you trip on something. The unexpected happens. Temptation overtakes you. Devastation wrecks you. Hardship blindsides you. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've heard people say, Pastor, I didn't even see it coming. 
Can I just tell you right now, based on the authority of the word of God, that Jesus's desire is that your relationship with him is not defined by subtle glances of dark silhouettes in the midst of the other darkness so that you can't even see where he is, much less see the things that the devil is doing to try to trip you up, to wreck you and to devastate you. That's not what he wants for you. The problem is, is that when we try to have it both ways, Jesus is saying, when your eye, when your focus, when your aim, when your desires are trying to have it both ways, that you will, you will have a bad eye, you will be filled with darkness. And Jesus says, how great is that darkness? I'll tell you how great it is. It's great enough that you don't see the things coming that are gonna try to wreck you. It's great enough so that you can't see where Jesus is and see how he's trying to lead you to get around that thing so that it doesn't wreck you. It's dark enough that you will then point the finger of blame at Jesus when the unexpected obstacle comes at you when it was never unexpected to him and he was trying to lead you around it all along. That's how great that darkness is. This is the reason why Jesus comes and follows this up in Matthew 6, 24. And he says, no one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. What is mammon? Mammon are possessions or earthly goods. That's the literal translation of this word. And so what Jesus is saying is, is that you, 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 you can't be a slave to two masters. You might be able to be an employee to two bosses. And as long as you show up on time, you do the work and you make your boss happy, you can juggle all of that. But what Jesus is trying to portray here, he's intentionally using harsh language that you cannot be a slave, a servant to God and to mammon because you, whichever one you choose, you will be fully devoted to. And there will be no room for the other. And Jesus is trying to help us to understand that it's not bad to have wealth or earthly possessions. There's nothing wrong with those things so long as those things serve you. The problem is that we oftentimes don't recognize when our stuff stops serving us and when we start serving our stuff. And I just thought it would be helpful today for us to be able to realize, okay, well, if it's not wrong for me to have stuff, but it's wrong for me to serve my stuff more than I serve my God, then I thought maybe it would be helpful to bring some diagnostic questions to the table today that might help us to unpack and, and begin to dig a little bit into the depths of our own soul to ask ourselves the question, do I serve my stuff or is my stuff serving me? I wanna ask you a couple questions today that might help you with this. Number one, does your self-esteem and or your self-worth rise or fall based on what you do or do not have? When you get that new pair of clothes, new pair of shoes, the new car, the new thing, you go on the stuff, does your self-esteem and your self-worth, does it rise? Do you feel like, oh man, now I'm finally better than so-and-so? Conversely, when you don't have those things and you see that other people do, does your self-worth 
fall? Here's the second question. Do you carry stress to pay for the things you have to the point that it robs you of the joys of life? Are you so stressed and so worked up that you can't enjoy the beauty of a sunset with your bride or your husband? Are you so stressed about about the things that you have chosen to acquire? Listen, there's a little bit of a difference when when life hits you and stuff is chaotic and and some things happen that that weren't your decision. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the car payment and the house payment and and the credit card payment and the cell phone payment and all of the subscriptions that you have that you're streaming, all of those things, the gym member, all of the things that you chose to do. Are you so stressed trying to make ends meet with all of the things that you have that you can't enjoy? five minutes sitting down and enjoying being in the presence of your kids or your parents? Here's another question. Are you more motivated to have more of those things in your life than you are to have more of Jesus in your life? Do you struggle to live generously with your time, with your money so that you can bless others the way that God has called you to as a follower of his. You see, here's the deal. If you answered yes to any of those questions, then I'm gonna say that the odds are overwhelmingly in the favor of that there are some things in your life where you have begun to serve mammon over your God. Because when you serve God, you... You will have dreams and motivations and aspirations, but the God-given dreams and motivations and aspirations will not lead you to a place of that overwhelming stress and worry that comes from trying to carry and keep all of the earthly things afloat. You might think, all right, preacher, man, back off. I mean, seriously, get a little too real up in here. I mean, is this really that big of a deal? It's as if Jesus anticipated you feeling that way, which is why he says next, therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You see, what Jesus does here is he follows up the discussion about which master you serve, God or mammon. He attacks the thing that you place your faith in He is coming after the thing that serves as the bedrock that you lay your head on at night that says, I'm okay and I'm good. What he does is is he's trying to help you see something that's different because the problem is, is that when we place our faith in mammon, when we serve mammon, instead of serving God, then what happens is, is it positions us to experience something that we are all too familiar with, and it's worry. I'm of the belief that of the great pandemics that are going on across the globe, amongst the greatest of those are the pandemics of fear, worry, and anxiety. And not just because of COVID, not just because 
The person you voted for didn't get elected, not because of the media coverage, not because panic porn keeps showing up on your social media. Freak out, be afraid, be very afraid, very, very, very afraid. But because beneath the surface, God's children have been lulled to sleep We've fallen guilty of worshiping and serving mammon instead of him. And the reason why Jesus says, stop worrying about this stuff is because he wants us to understand that when we begin to worship and serve mammon over him, we begin to worry about things. It's as if our body recognizes you are not equipped to control the things you're trying to control. And your body goes, whoa, hold up. I'm freaking out. I'm panicking. What's going to happen if this happens? What's going to happen if that happens? What's the matter with my kids? What's going on with our finances? The whole country's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm freaking out. I'm panicking. I'm worried. I'm filled with anxiety. My heart is constantly racing. I don't know what it means to be at peace or to have joy because I'm constantly freaking out about one thing after another, after another, after another. I can't sleep at night. Jesus is trying to convey a critical message that we have to understand. And it's that we can't control these things. And we need to take mammon off the throne of our life and put him back on it. What I want you to see is I want you to see the incredible grace that Jesus brings to this conversation six times. In these next few verses, he mentions worry. And every single time that he does, it is in the context of the things that we try to control. What Jesus does is he doesn't, he doesn't come with a finger of condemnation. How dare you? What's the matter with you? No, 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 no. that's not what he does. But he so graciously comes alongside of us He takes our eyes off of what's causing our heart to race and beat and the things that's causing us to freak out and stay awake at night and and, and lose our hair and chew our teeth and, you know, drink coffee like it's going out of style. And he says, listen, take your eyes off of this just for a second and look at what I created. Notice what he says. He says, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? You know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, take your eyes off of your stuff just for a second. Just look at the birds. They're not stressed out. They're not panicked. They're not trying to climb the ladder. They're not trying to impress anybody. They're living. They're doing what they were created do. Your father loves them. He feeds them. Now listen, they still got to get up. Early bird still gets the worm. They got to go get it. The birds are created. They're born. They exist. They fulfill the purpose that they were created with. 
and then they die. No worry, no anxiety. And then he says, are you not of more value than they? Listen, I just feel like somebody needs to be reminded in this place that you are valuable to God, that you are not forsaken. You're not the wart on the rear end of creation. You're not Eeyore, so stop being woe is me. You are of such value to the king of creation that he sent his son, the prince of creation, that while you and I were still jacked up and busted and messed up and hopeless, the prince of creation, the creator of all things, died so that he could buy us back, so that he could make us new, so that he could walk in relationship with you. Then he says, let's, let's look at something else in case that doesn't get it. Verse 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, King Solomon, the wealthiest man that ever lived, he built the most ornate gardens and palaces um, and, 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 and the most beautiful things that anybody has ever created. And not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, this is so important, listen to this, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Jesus is saying, look at the lilies of the field. They have a purpose and their purpose while they're alive is to portray the creative genius of our God. But that's not their only purpose because God knows that you need sustenance. And so when they die, they can be ground up and they can be thrown into the oven to create food and nourishment for you. Whether they live, they have purpose. When they die, they have purpose. What Jesus is trying to portray, what he's trying to stress is that in the midst of all of this, that everything that has been created exists for the purpose that it was created for. And when it follows and pursues and walks in accordance to the purpose it was designed for, all it does is live and grow. And what God is so desperate for you to understand is just the way that the birds of the air were created for a purpose and the lilies of the field were created for a purpose. You were created for a purpose. Ephesians 2.10 tells us for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What this means is, is that before you were created, before you and your mama did, your, not you and your mama, that just got weird. Your mama and your daddy, thank you very much. I'm from Arkansas gets twisted sometimes, you know. I can say that. You cannot. Before your mom and your daddy did the thing that led to you, listen, it wasn't just a physical exercise. There was something supernatural that was happening in the heavenlies. And God looked across all of his kingdom and says, I need somebody who can do something. And he decided what it was that needed to be done. And then he created you. 
And the incredible news about our God is that his desire all along in the journey that we have with him is that part of the journey is that we could have the light bulb moment where everything becomes clear. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm wired this way. This is why I have the personality and the interests and the, the tendencies and why certain things come easier to me than they do to others. It all begins to converge together and make sense. Oh, God, now I understand why I'm alive and why I'm breathing. God wants that for you. This church wants that for you. This is why we created the Next Steps course, by the way. Yes, there's some stuff where you can learn about the church and we can learn about you, but at the heart of it, the, pro, the point of the Next Steps course is to walk with you over the course of several weeks and several conversations so that we can work with you and come alongside of you to help you answer the question, why am I alive? And then we wanna walk with you to help you realize that your purpose is not the color of your hair, it's not the job you work, it's not the money you have, it's not the spouse you're married to, it's not, it's not any of those things, it's not the color of your skin. Your purpose was determined by God before you were created. And when you walk in that purpose, You'll be like the lilies of the field and the birds of the air and, and God will just, you, you'll be, be able to see God's provision and God's care and God's taking care of you. The problem is, is that so many Christians don't understand the journey that God wants to take them on. And so they get saved and they go, man, great, I'm going to heaven. Woo-hoo! And you live the rest of your life right there. Can I just tell you, that's the first step of your journey with God. God next wants to help you understand how you can find some healing and some freedom from some things in your past. He next wants you to help you discover your purpose and why you're here. And then ultimately you get to the last step of the journey where you begin to realize, man, I know why I'm here and I am a dangerous tool in the hands of my God because I am making a difference for the glory of Jesus' name. It's the mission of our church, by the way, to help you discover life, Discover belonging because healing and freedom happens in the context of biblical community. To discover your purpose and to make a difference. The problem is, is that so many Christians, we don't understand that. And so we place our faith in the lesser things, the physical things, the earthly possessions. And when the moth eats it and the rust corrodes it and folks break in and steal it, foundation we built our life on is gone. Jesus in this message is calling us to something different. He says, next, therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek for your heavenly father knows you need all these things. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, you need to stop worrying about these things. If you are a child of mine, if you're a follower of mine, if you are in the family of God by placing your faith in Christ, then stop worrying about these things because the Gentiles, which is a, which is a word to talk about all the people who worshiped other gods, they know that they need those things and they are constantly begging and pleading for their gods to provide it and they never do but your God knows what you need and he knows what you need before you even know that you need it God knows what you need even before you're aware that there's a situation that's going to happen that you're going to need something 
And he follows this up and he says, with what is, I believe, the most profound statement that has ever been uttered in the course of human history, far greater than Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream or Lincoln's Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address or JFK's Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For You But What You Can Do For Your Country, greater than any business statement, mission statement, vision statement, any political ad or slogan that has ever been thought of, better than any speech that has been given before the battle. Jesus utters these words in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? He says, don't, don't seek your hopes and your dreams first. You can have hopes and dreams, but seek first the kingdom of God. Say, God, the way that Jesus prayed, if you remember, we talked about a couple weeks ago, Lord, let your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, so what Jesus is saying, we can connect the dots. He's saying, listen, as you live, as you breathe, as you go through life, you need to be thinking, God, I want your kingdom first in, in this world, in my life. God, would you align my priorities? Would you help me to see what is important? Would you help me eliminate the things that take me away from you? Would you help me to add the the things that draw me closer to you and my hopes and my dreams and my burdens and my aspirations will come in second place after seeking first your kingdom because your kingdom is all that matters because I was bought and paid for when the king died on the cross and rose from the grave. I'm yours, king, and I exist to serve you and you alone, not me. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not that fake stuff that we've been talking about over the last few weeks where we try to, we try to impress people with how we live and look how spiritual and how holy and look how much money I gave and look how spiritual I am. I fasted. Look how terrible I look. It's obvious I'm suffering for Jesus. No, 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 not that fake righteousness kind of stuff, but his righteousness. What is his righteousness? We've been learning about it. It starts in the heart. Says God, my aim and my desire is to love you and arrange my life in response to your love for me. And then I begin to do righteous things as an expression outwardly. The truth that I have felt change inwardly, that I've been changed and made new in Christ. We seek first his kingdom. His righteousness. And then he says this incredible promise, and all these things will be added into you. That seems like a bold promise, almost on the verge of name it and claim it, but it's not. What Jesus is saying here is that when you live like that, the same way that God provides for the birds of the air that are existing for their purpose, the same way that God provides for the lilies of the field that are existing for their purpose, when you begin to live like that, you will naturally align your life and pursue him and organize yourself to live on purpose that you were created for, for the glory of God. And your God says, when you live like that, I'll take care of all this stuff that you need. As long as you're walking in the pursuit of the purpose that I created you for, you will have every single thing you need to do what I created you to do. You will never be without. You will never be shorthanded. You will never be poverty stricken from the things that are required to do what I created you and designed you and called you. And now I am inviting you to do. That promise is bolstered, by the way, in Philippians Chapter four, verse 19, when he says, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. According to his glory, not yours. 
Jesus concludes this life-changing but very challenging portion of his manifesto with this verse. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Can I tell you that the source and the root of worry is anchored in what you serve and it's fueled by things that you know you can't control. Jesus is saying, you can't have it both ways. You can't serve me and serve mammon. In this last verse, he punctuates it with this truth, that we should trust God for what's coming tomorrow. God, it's yours. You know what's coming tomorrow. I don't. I'm going to trust you. And instead of worrying about what's coming tomorrow, I'm going to focus all of my energy and all of my effort in following you in what I face today. You say, great preacher, how am I supposed to do that? You don't know about my financial problems. You don't know about the brokenness in my relationships. You don't know how debilitated I've been since that that diagnosis. You don't know how crushing the weight of grief is. And you're right, I don't. But what I do know that there is a God in heaven who loves you enough to send his son Jesus to die for you, to give you something different, something new, to give you hope and give you a future. And the one who made a way when there was no way is asking you to trust him more than you trust the things that you can't control. Because every single thing that falls into the category of stuff that you think you can control or the stuff you know you can't control all fits sufficiently in the almighty hands of God who runs the universe without batting an eye. So how do we make this practical? I want want to help you today very quickly, three things. First thing that we can do in order to be able to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, the first thing that I think that we can do is we can learn the ways of his kingdom. The only way to learn the ways of his kingdom is to spend time in his word. And listen, I get it. Sometimes it's confusing. It's difficult to understand. The Bible is full of all kinds of stuff that's, that's hard. There are times where I get tripped up. But for the overwhelming majority of things in life, there ain't much that you can't figure out with your Bible and Google. If you have an issue, go to Google. What does the Bible have to say about, and then insert your issue? Or what's a Bible verse that talks about, insert your issue? And just go see. And as you're reading those things, great, you're gonna see a bunch of things. Some of it's like whacked out and twisted, and some of it's gonna be really good. Go first to the source, which is the word. See what God has to say about it. The second thing that you can do is you can pray to him and ask for understanding. The God of heaven is not the author of confusion. He doesn't want to be hidden from you. He will oftentimes be several steps ahead of you so that you can see him clearly so that when he calls your name to take steps of faith and saying, come this way, 
you can clearly see where he is. But his desire is to not be so far ahead of you that, that, that you don't know where he is and you can't hear his voice. So when you're angry, pray. When you're frustrated, pray. When you're confused, pray. When you're broken, pray. When you don't know what to do, pray. When you think you do know what to do, stop that and pray. And as you pray, I pray that you will understand and you will put into practice something that we suck at as people in the 21st century living in America. Something that Psalm 4610 says, that you be still. Turn off the phone, turn off the news, turn off the radio. You find a quiet place. You don't know about my kids. I do know about your kids. Put a lock on the freaking door. Put a gallon of ice cream in front of them if you have to. They'll survive, but you won't without a word from the Lord. Be still, be still, be still. The random thing comes up in your mind, have a pen and paper ready and write it down and say, get behind me, Satan, because right now I am being still because I need to hear from my God. Be still, know that I am God. Pour your heart out. And if necessary, wait in that moment, in that place, in that space until you have heard the voice of God whisper in that still small voice into your soul and you can get up with confidence saying, God, I got it. You say, my God doesn't speak to me like that. Yes, he will. The issue is not that your God doesn't speak like that. The issue is, is that your ears have not been tuned to his frequency. And your ears will not be tuned to his frequency when all you have is noise, 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 noise. And then lastly, the third thing that you can do, surrender to his ways. It's insightful to learn about his kingdom. It's encouraging to receive understanding from him. But can I tell you that none of that will lead to breakthrough or transformation in your life until you say, yes, Lord. Let me give you a pro tip. The key to fully seeing God's movement and work in your life is to not say, yes, Lord, after he has issued the question. The key is to say, yes, Lord. Now, what is the question? That is the heart of surrender. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We can't have it both ways, family. We are deluded and living dangerously if we try to have it both ways and sit on the fence and say, I'm gonna get this little bit of both. I'm gonna have the best of both worlds. You can't serve God and mammon. The question that God has put on my heart to ask you today, not that you would answer it for me, but that you would hear the Spirit of God whispering into your soul this question, what is God inviting you to trust him with today?
What is God inviting you to trust him with today? My hope and my prayer for everybody that is hearing this message is that whatever that is, you would say, yes, Lord. You would seek first his kingdom in that thing. And as you do, that your faith would grow. As you watch God remove the thing that you've had a death grip on, he won't pry it from your hands. He'll wait until you open You hold it up and say, here, Dad, I'll let you have this. Is it your grief? Is it your finances? Is it your singleness? Is it your fertility problems? Is it a broken relationship? Is it a wayward child? Is it a business deal gone bad? Is it shame? Is it what they said? Is it what they did to you? Your dad, you can have it. When you do this, this is what your God does. will come in and he will gently take that from you. And then he will place into your hands something that is very different. Something that doesn't take life from you, but something that gives life to you. I don't know what it is. But can I tell you that the most valuable things that God has ever put in my hands are things that I cannot measure with dollars and cents. What is it that God is asking you to trust him with today? At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you've found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.